Thank you. Good morning. I uh, want to look this morning at Matthew 11, 2 through 6. I confess that uh, when Rick texted me this morning saying, are you on for today? I <laughs> I was surprised. I had uh, totally forgotten about that and uh, this being on the calendar. So uh, this was the passage we came across this morning in family worship. And uh, it uh, struck me in a new way. So We'll consider it here and um, think about some applications from it. This is John the Baptist in prison and having difficulty uh, with his circumstances and uh, a reality that he is living that he did not expect. So we'll start in verse 2 of Matthew 11. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And it's that last verse, verse six, that is really where I want to focus today by way of application. Uh, the, the context here, of course, is a crisis moment for John. And he's in prison, and it appears that that is the reason he's asking this question. And the, the question is really shocking when you think about it. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Well, what do you mean, John? Uh, Weren't you there at the river baptizing uh, lots of people and, and Jesus came and you had said, I, I am the one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. I'm, I'm the man Isaiah spoke of. Uh, didn't you yourself point to Jesus? Uh, well, before pointing to him saying, behold, one is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And were you not the one who baptized Jesus and you, you pointed to him and said, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who said, I, I should have be baptized by you, not the other way around. And when his disciples were complaining that more disciples were being baptized by Jesus and his disciples than John was, John made that wonderful and famous statement I must decrease, but he must increase, or he must increase, but I must decrease. And I'm the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom. And he seemed to be fully convinced and uh, have no doubts in his mind whatsoever that Jesus was the one. And that was even before he had done any mighty works uh, that John was saying these things. And so what gives here? What's why the, the sudden doubt? It seems there's no other. Uh, explanation other than that he is in jail and did not think that would be where he would be if Jesus was the one. And so that means that there is some uh, misconception in his mind, some idea he has about Christ and who Christ is and what he came to do and what Christ coming would mean uh, for the world and what would it mean for the people of God and those who were lovers of him and submissive of him. He had ideas in his mind and 
what was happening, the reality unfolding before him was not at all in conformity with the preconceived notion that he had of what it would mean that Jesus had come. And so John, of course, was thinking of himself rightly as that one prophesied about in Malachi, where he is coming with his winnowing fan and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And indeed, that is what Jesus came to do and be. But John himself did not imagine that him coming and then him burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire could be separated by thousands of years. I don't think anyone imagined that. Uh, there's no insertion of that in the text in Malachi. Uh, doesn't say anything about that. It just stacks the coming and then right after that, the, the next thing. And one would logically read that and, and suppose that, yes, he, he's coming. And when he first comes, no thought of a second coming. When he first comes, that's what he's going to do. And uh, so why is John in prison? Why am I in prison if that's who you are, if that's who you came to be? Um, it tells us that oftentimes prophets did not understand the full import of the things they themselves were prophesying. And if they didn't understand it, how much less the people many times in, in dealing with the mysteries of prophecy. Uh, Jesus's answer to him is not, uh, you know, of course, I'm the one. He simply says, the blind receive their sight. Go and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, yes, I am the one. I am fulfilling those very things that were spoken about me in the book of Isaiah. And I am doing those very things. And no one could do those things if he were not the Messiah. Of course, I am him. But then he finishes by saying, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And there is a rebuke to John. Uh, are you offended with me? Because you imagined me one way and I turned out to be another way. Are you offended? Because you had a certain idea in mind and what it would mean for me to come. And that idea turned out to be wrong and misguided. Are you offended in me? Um, are we offended by Christ because he doesn't do what we want him to do? Because he doesn't work things out for us like we want him to work them out. Now, this was John's crisis moment. Um, and within a short amount of time, he's going to lose his head. He's not just going to prison, but because of the petty uh, pride of a godless man and woman who decided that they, because they loved one another, they would rather be together and let's run roughshod over the marriage vows that she made to uh, Herod's brother. Uh, he basically takes his sister-in-law. She thinks that because she wants out of the marriage, she's therefore free to be out of the marriage, that because she canceled the marriage bond, now she can marry whoever she wants. And that's all they got to do is get that divorce certificate and they can do whatever they wish. And John says, no, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's your brother's wife, not your wife. It's not lawful for you to have her. And doing what prophets do, they, they tell the truth. They don't mince words. They don't sugarcoat things. 
they tell it like it is. Um, they have a courage that causes them to uh, not consider their own safety and their own well-being and to say, you know, I, I'm going to say what God wants me to say. I'm going to tell the truth no matter what. Um, John didn't understand about that rule that many have today saying the pastors can't meddle in politics, I guess. And so he suffered for it. He was uh, imprisoned and uh, Herodias was eager to have him dead. And she got the job done uh, through her sensual daughter. And the dance and the banquet and his promises and, and you know the rest. John's not the only one, of course, that has a crisis moment when it comes to Christ, when it comes to God and who God is and what he's doing and what he's not doing. And uh, Job had a major crisis, of course. We know that story full well. And uh, Job's complaint is summed up in chapter 7, verses 19 through 20, where he says, Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? And throughout the book of Job, Job's complaining that he's righteous. He's, he's tried to live a life pleasing to God, and, and he's right about that. God himself said in chapter 1 that he was blameless and there was no man like him on the earth. And Job recognizes this. It's not just a subjective feeling. He recognizes it, and he doesn't understand why, if that's the case, why would he be now suffering to the degree that he is? It doesn't make sense to him. Um, his idea of God is, is that God rewards the righteous and gives them a good life, and he punishes the wicked and gives them a bad life. And now he has a major crisis with who is God after all, and what is he doing after all? And how do we even understand God? The Psalms are full of complaints like this. Um, Asaph in Psalm 79 says, pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. Like, not us, them, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Then he says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations and our side vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Jesus himself on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, when we read that, we shouldn't think of that as simply just Jesus mechanically quoting scripture in order to fulfill scripture, as though it was said that he would say this. Um, prophesied in Psalm 22, and therefore, since Jesus needed to show that he was that one being referred to in Psalm 22, therefore, he just recited out the words, wrote on the cross in a meaningless kind of way, but didn't feel them or uh, that they didn't express what he was actually feeling at that moment. And so Jesus himself, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I think this is just a common experience of all believers. 
And it's also the experience of false believers. Uh, people like the rocky ground soil converts who spring up with joy when they hear the word because they sense some self-interest in it. Well, this sounds good. Um, being saved from hell. I've got fire insurance. This sounds good to me. Um, if there's a hell after all, I better have fire insurance. This sounds good. And they sound, they spring up with joy over it. And then when persecution comes, which is, um, is illustrated by the sun, the scorching heat that comes out and the, the plant has no deep root in itself. And so then that's representing persecution over the word. <clears throat> and when that happens, they fall away. They wither away. They, I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't what I was signing up for. This is not what I was planning on when I embraced the call of discipleship. When I consented to be a disciple of Jesus, I was, I was not signing up for this. I was signing up for a better life, not a worse one. I've heard it said once that uh, the Apostle Paul could never, would never be allowed to give his testimony in an American church because rather than the kind of testimony of, well, my life was a mess and, and it was horrible and I was miserable and, and I, uh, I became a Christian and then all, everything went well after that and it was nothing but prosperity and smooth sailing from there instead paul would have to say well actually my life was pretty easy until i became a disciple of jesus christ and since then it's been nothing but constant beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and hunger and thirst and hardship but this is the question for us and jesus asked the question to john well he says it's not a question he says blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So the question for us is, are we offended? Uh, think of your circumstances right now and your life. And it is a given that every one of us, simply because we are a human being, have sufferings that we're dealing with. And uh, as Christians, we have particular sufferings that come with that. And so when you consented to be a disciple of Christ, what did you think you were signing up for? Did you think that it would be easier than it is? After all, there, there's a logic to it. If the king of kings is your older brother and your friend, and he is your advocate, and he is for you, then why should you have troubles? Maybe that's what John was thinking in prison. Did you think that you'd have more money than you do and not have to struggle all the time financially? After all, your God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why should you have financial troubles? Did you think that you would surely be married by now? Did you think that you'd have a happier marriage than you do? Did you think that you'd have children, but you don't have any children? Or that you'd have more children than you have? Did you think your children would love and serve the Lord? Surely, because God would surely do that for you. And yet the reality is many of them don't. Did you think that you would have more success in your business? Because God would be for you and he would want a Christian business to thrive, wouldn't he? 
Did you think that you would be famous and have notoriety? Did you think that you'd have a lot better health than you do and wouldn't have to struggle physically with so many things and be so weak? Because after all, God is your God and he is he has healing power in his hands. If you're a pastor, did you think you'd have more people coming to your church? More numerical growth. A strong and healthy church. After so many years in the ministry, did you think that certain problems would have been over long ago and way behind you in the rearview mirror, and yet they're still here? Or it's the same thing, different day. A confession of my own arrogance when I came out of seminary um, many years ago. And I went to my first church. I arrogantly supposed that because God had called me into the ministry and because God had equipped me and because I was now had a head full of knowledge ready to share with everybody. And because I had a preaching gift that I and my own self-assessment thought was, you know, a little bit above average that surely God would send me all kinds of people. Um, he, he would be so glad that I was there, um, that I'd signed up for the ministry. So glad that uh, there was someone like me out there preaching the word, telling it like it is. And uh, he, he would send his sheep to my church. Uh, it would be a no-brainer. Of course God would do that. And that just hasn't been the case. It hasn't been the case at all. and. From the day I left seminary to now, it has been a constant struggle. And I have lived in, uh, I have served in churches that are always just barely surviving. One crisis away from complete dissolution. If you're a missionary, did you think that you'd have more converts by now and have a thriving indigenous church? And yet the reality is you have few to none. But on the other hand, you have a super abundance of problems and headaches and conflicts and discouragements beyond your wildest imaginations. And you thought there's, uh, you know, there's so few labors into the harvest. And here I am signing up and saying, Lord, send me. And you, you go to all this trouble, you, you spend all this time raising financial support, you travel from church to church, you leave your home, your friends, your church life, your, the fellowship that you enjoyed there, you're going to a strange culture, you're lonely. Uh, surely um, all that won't be for nothing. Surely you're going to go and, and, and God is going to start giving the increase and and the people there will, um, by the grace of God, turn and, and uh, just eat it up and drink up whatever you have to offer them. And there you are sitting there, and it seems like you've got 10,000 times more problems than converts. And the question is, are you offended at me? From Christ. I'm, you, I'm not who you thought I was. 
you had your life planned out very differently. How you drew up the plans for your life is was not my plan. Are you offended with me? When we started praying for revival three years ago, I don't know what you expected. I don't, not even sure what I expected, but it's a legitimate question. Did we expect that surely by now the revival would have come? Wouldn't God be glad that this many people, yet it's not a lot, but you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 people that show up on the Zoom call and probably others beyond that who, who don't join the Zoom call but do pray. Wouldn't God be the kind of God who would be delighted in those efforts and more than ready to pour out his spirit upon us? What's the problem? What's he waiting for? Where is he? It's really the same question John was asking. Are, are you the one? Are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? And really, we could probably rephrase that because it's um, not to rephrase scripture, but I mean, just the meaning of what's at, at the heart of that question of John's. Are you the one I expected? Huh. And uh, was my expectation based on a false idea of you? So as we come to prayer today. Uh, let us reflect, I guess, upon that issue of being offended with God because he's not doing what we want him to do and um, trying to adjust our expectations um, of what we thought God would do with what he's in fact doing. And let us continue to pray for um, the blessings of revival.